Hello and welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. This is a special day that the Lord has made uh, simply because it's my birthday! Woo! I'm happy at my age, actually. I should be more like, it's my birthday and I'll cry if I want to. I'm not going to cry, actually. It's been a great day so far. I did the school run in my silk bonnet and got locked out of my house. So that was good. Um, but I managed to get back in so we can get this show, and uh, which has actually been set up by my trusty sidekick, Aisha. Aisha, how's it going? Uh, really good, yeah. Today's a great day, and it's your birthday, so that's an amazing yeah. thing. But it's sunny as well. Sun came out for you. I love that. It did. Anyone wants to do anything for my birthday, you can sign up to our Patreon. Thank you very much. And we have Jendela. Jendela, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I'm good. Happy to be alive. <laughs> I was just a very tired, oh, I'm good. That sounds, that sounds like an old black woman's life, you know what I mean? When you see your grandma, right, you're like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just happy to be alive. They let me take me out. But we're happy. You're like, yeah, thanks, Gran, you sound great. All right, right. I'm great. I'm wonderful. <laughs> Woo. Glad, no, genuinely glad to be here. Genuinely, genuinely, genuinely glad to be here, so... Yeah. Oh God, and we've got Jen, how you doing? Liz, sorry, why did I say Jen? Liz, how you, so that's not very good. Jen, I was calling you again, sorry. Liz, how you doing, you okay? It's okay, I don't mind, you know, like if you want to call me Jen, you call me Jen, that's cool. Like I love Jen Della. Um, I'm really good, man. I'm really, really good. Really happy to be here in conversation with, um, with all three of you. So yeah, I feel good. It is very nice having you all here, having a nice, lovely black woman conversation. Um, yeah, these are always the shows that we like best anyway. These are all the, actually the shows that just do the best when we're all in conversation together. I'm hearing that Birmingham accent as well from you, Liz. Absolutely. I one, two, one, you know, through and through. It's, uh, it's what I'm representing. I was there. I've got my cousin lives there. She got married at the weekend. So I was just there at the weekend. And I always say Birmingham has got the best looking people in the country. Yeah, oh, we'll I take that. Me and Jen Della will take that, we'll take that. I, I also think, you know, I remember actually seeing you in Birmingham performing and me and my sisters were at like the front row and we were just like, we are here to support you. We are here to be present in this moment. And it was phenomenal. It was a show that stays with me. So I wanted to just get that out. Oh, brilliant, thank you. Hopefully next year when uh, COVID allowing, I will be back on the road again. So Aisha, do you want to introduce this show? Cause you had, uh, you had been talking about getting the subject going for quite a while, hadn't you? Yeah, because actually it started with um, some tweets that Jendela wrote a while back and um, they really sat with me, struck me. You know, when you see something, it actually makes you sit down and think, so um, I'm a mother, my son, you'll have probably seen him come and go, but he is, he's nearly nine, obviously. Abba's got three kids. Um, I don't know about you, Liz, are you a parent as well? I'm but... not a parent biologically, no. <laughs> but you're a, it's your career, isn't it? You work with a lot I of am a, I'm a parent to many. Yes, exactly. And obviously, Jendela has a couple of kids as well. And the tweets were about um, over-parenting our black children in public. And I, I sat and I thought to myself, it's kind of, it was an extension of, um, you got to work twice as hard and be twice as good. But also we're so aware of the racist white gaze that we over parent our children 
One, because we know that they're being judged. Two, we know we're being judged. But actually, what are the effects of that? So um, I just would maybe, Jendela, if you wanted to expand a little bit on sort of what got you there, and then maybe Liz can come in. I'm sure you've got my guys have got loads to say on both things. Yeah, so I think um, I think the tweets kind of came from a place of where I'm very like aware of like the structures that are in place. I'm very aware of like the system that we live within. But being aware isn't always enough because it's uh, like to actually unlearn those habits that there's like survival habits that you pick up. It's like a whole nother level. So I guess realizing like being out and about with my son, I think he was um, my oldest was like a toddler at the time. Very like very high energy, very like friendly, very like in everyone's business and kind of feeling like the disapproval from other people the kind of looks the kind of and then being aware that you know what like oh he's a black boy like I don't want him to um I don't want him to mess up basically because whatever the repercussions are it's going to be like 10 times more so if he knocks something over in the shop it's not just like oh you know a toddler be it's like oh that rowdy young child and disruptive and just kind of thinking about things that um like people have said, like I remember there was one teacher who thankfully left his like nursery setting soon after, <laughs> but she said that he was aggressive. And I know my I know my child, he's not aggressive. He's very high energy, yes. And obviously being a toddler, you, you, you're trying to learn boundaries. You're trying to, he's very high energy. He's not aggressive. And I remember having that conversation with her and I was just angry. I was just, I was scared as well because I was like, what does this mean? And, um, yeah so just that like that scrutiny and I feel like it's performance I think a lot of us as black people we grow up learning how to perform for the white gaze like we make our calculations like what is going to keep us safe what's going to keep us um like away from further scrutiny what is going to be presentable and we act according to that performance and then I realized that I was doing it with my parenting so I wasn't parenting to for his best interest I was parenting to perform for the people around because I was concerned about the judgment or what they might say and yeah it was just something that I've, I've also had to like sit with and I've got um excuse me I've got two boys now <clears throat> I've got two boys two very high energy boys and I've, it's something over the years that I've had to just learn how to like deal with and deal with by in a sense you know what let them actually be children let them run let them express themselves let me as a parent parent them in the way that I believe is best not because people are watching not because they're judging but because I love them and I want the best for them and the best for them isn't teaching them how to perform for the white gaze that is scrutinizing them so it's been a journey but it's not an easy one at all and um yeah it's something I think a lot of us go through I think it's difficult as well, isn't it? Because you actually, or I certainly found myself thinking that part of it is like having the talk with your black boy. And that's part of the reason that we do this is to protect them. Part of the reason we are over parenting is protective. It isn't because I don't want my son to run up and down in the way that part of the reason is because in fact the other day we were cycling along the cycle lane, the family cycle lane along the seafront in Brighton. My son pulled in and there was a mammal, middle-aged man in Lycra. I was surprised he could get on a bike, quite frankly. Anyway, my man, my son pulled over to the side. The guy slammed his brakes on and then shook his head at my eight-year-old son. I thought to myself, 
It's a family cycle lane. He pulled to the side because he's nervous because you're cycling in it like a lunatic. You know, if you want to cycle like that, go find road. You know what I mean? How dare you? But this is, you know, I mean, Avril always says it's around this age that your little cute, everyone stopping calling his hair so lovely, he's so cute, he's so cute, starts to be a threat to a big grown man. And so part of it is knowing that that's how they're perceived and that's kind of why we overparent. But my son, you know, the, the most heartbreaking thing, he was, he made himself smaller visibly straight away after that. And I kept saying to him, you did nothing wrong. It was that guy's fault. He is the adult that doesn't know how to cope with his feelings. You, you're eight. You didn't do anything wrong. But I could see him make himself smaller. So um, I wonder if there's any advice you can give from your experience, Liz. Um, I, think, I think, you know, it's really interesting. And me and Jandela have had conversations before and we spoke on the Black Ballad podcast, Big Up Black Ballad. Um, and I think what we have to address, first of all, is that as we all know, white supremacy is not the shark, it is the water. And when we accept and understand that, we know how the adultification of black children happens very early on, way before eight, way before five. And so this process of adultification that we are aware of becomes heightened in its awareness for black children from the moment that they enter or maybe not enter into the world because we're looking at also black maternal you know rates and so these things have to be taken into consideration that for some black children the trauma associated with being brought into the world is already something that's having to be processed not just by us but by the children and actually there has to be a heightened awareness of that within the early years sector so when you're talking about advice i think one of the things that I always aim to do is look at the bigger societal impact and the issues around structural racism that do penetrate the early years. And the early years is prior to being in reception or into school. So if we're looking at naught to five, these are the social awareness issues that the workforces need to have. So before we're engaging with children, um, we have to be thinking about what knowledge do the teachers or the early years practitioners have because it's traumatic. Listening to Jandela and you speak about that, it's traumatic. It's traumatic for me to hear. And I said to you at the start, no, I'm not a biological mother. And there is something around the word mothering, which is really, really deeply embedded within the core of the work that I do. Because we have to think about the way that the community, the village, the, the shared responsibility that we have in raising black children. And that is all of us. And so when we're thinking about living in our full selves as children, we have to make sure they have the automatic right to do that. Black children have a right to childhood. They have a right to joy. They have a right to expression. We cannot be dulling their or dimming their light because of the white gaze as Jendela absolutely, you know, hit the nail on the head because that is harmful. That practice is harmful. But if we don't equip not only the workforce, but our children with that sense of pride and sense of being, you know, Ava shares a lot about her daughter and in those things, she shares joy, but she also shares the reality of, you know, having a little black girl. And these are the things that we have to be accustomed with seeing. It's normal to see the joy. Ava, I loved when you talked about Mimi being on the train and her just sitting on the, you know, on the floor, on the train just living her best life, why not? You know, that is important. And so I think when we're thinking about policing, over-policing our children, we don't wanna give them those messages because we already know that society is going to be policing our children at every stage and not just by the police per se, but as 
Aisha, you said, that white man on the bike that pulled in, you know, that, that is a policing of the space that a, a, block, a black body occupies, a black child's body. And then you're having to be left picking up the pieces to work through that trauma because it's traumatic. That's why we're here and we're able to recall times and tales of our childhood and our adolescence and how we've navigated those spaces to just get here and then still be trying to justify our reason for being here and why we deserve to be here. Yet done that, Widea, like we have been here um, and we're not shutting up and we're not gonna make ourselves smaller to pe for people to feel comfortable, for white people to feel comfortable. But don't be silly. That's not what the work is about. A few years ago, because I used to take my, my son to 100 Black Men of London, and they would have a parenting class and they would have an, uh, a class for the kids. So it was like, you know, a dual thing going on. And it was really, really important to me to learn certain things. But certainly learning um, parenting from an African perspective or just, you know, African diaspora or whether African born perspective. And one of the things that they pointed out was genetic memory and they'd explained it. And I think we hear a lot of it spoken about in the mainstream when it comes to the Jewish community, um, like that intergenerational trauma that they have. But I, we don't really hear so much of it when it comes to the black community, but it's when you look at certain behaviors, it's very, very obvious that that affects our community as well. And he was saying certain things that you learn very young and you teach your kids very young. And one of the things he was saying was don't run don't run because like back in the day when black people were running they were like runaway slaves you know what i mean they were running from something and it was always like we have this thing so ingrained in ourselves and i think it's like everyone had mentioned before it's kind of like for the white gays we we kind of i remember being really conscious of the fact with uh younger the younger kids the older kids sorry of what people might think about them. And just the freedom that I have now with the younger one where I literally do not care. She will be a child. You will not say anything to her. I am her mother. I don't know if anyone's ever found um, people try to discipline your child. I don't know if that happens to white parents, but I know personally it's happened to me. Yeah. Have you found yeah it's happened to me before as well and it's like it's definitely a barrier that I just have to assert myself to draw because it's like who are you like you don't you don't know my child you don't you don't have their interest at heart and I think that um as, so I come from like a Nigerian background and there is kind of this idea of community parenting where say for example aunties or close friends of the family have that space to discipline your child but even in that setting like you still have to draw your boundaries because not not everyone's um perspective of what a good child is is going to be yours and they might be kind of trying to discipline them to these like generational traumas or these kind of um ideas that are passed on from slavery or colonialism as to what like a good black child is so yeah I absolutely like hate it and sometimes I like in public I've literally had to be like don't talk to my son <laughs> like don't talk to him like when you see someone like trying to oh you shouldn't run. like no it's fine talk to me if you have a problem talk to me I'm the adult here don't address my child. I also think it's also the way that we are the a newer generation and Western, let's be honest, the way that I'm happy for my son to talk to me, whereas I'm not entirely sure that sort of members of my extended family and certainly who are a generation above 
had that kind of relationship even with us and with their parents. So, I mean, we definitely have more banter. My son is 100 and I don't even know how many percent ruder than I ever could have dared to be <laughs> to my parents or aunts or uncles to the point where sometimes I'm like, you know, like, I'm me one, you said that to me, <laughs> but that's different, that's, that's us, that's our relationship, and actually, you know, unless you know that, please don't come and talk about it to us, or certainly not to him, you know? Yeah, absolutely, I think these are the things that we have to really measure as well, how boundaries change, and our own experiences of being parented, because if we don't look at our experiences of being parented, then it really does hinder and can really influence how we go forward to imagine parenting to be and so I think the, the notion of mothering as I said when we look at this thing around who do we take guidance from you know there are many black women in my life who I take guidance from but I always know the boundary I know the boundary that I'm going to kind of draw with regards to what I'm going to take on board what I'm not I also know what information I will kind of use to influence how I do the work that I do here in this space but then I think about some of the guidance that I've got from my biological mother and how imperative that has been to allow me as you know, a 38 year old woman to take up space and do that unapologetically. And I know that I've been able to do that because of the foundation that had been laid by my biological mother. But I also know that the, the intrinsic way in which people who are not biologically connected to you still have that power and that influence, which is sometimes really, really important to help you get onto, you know, the next rung in the ladder as it were, because we, I think make assumptions about the roles of, or who has got their mother biologically in their life. And we have to talk about that. It's really important. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a mother in my life. And I, to be honest, when I had one there, I'm probably better off without having one there. But I mean, I think what I learned over the years, like I was 17 when I was pregnant with my first child, I had Mimi um, 12 days before my 40th birthday. So it's kind of like a massive, massive difference. And one of the things that I learned in those years is like what we were told growing up about, oh, you need to do this when you go out in the world, you know, like Aisha mentioned the twice as good and all of that. And I just got to thinking, if the world is so harsh for black parents, for black people, right? And it's so harsh for black children, why do you have to do it so early? Even if you do, if it is harsh for them, shouldn't home be the safe space? Home should be the place where you can come back. So Mimi probably, I mean, a lot of people don't like the way that I discipline Mimi, um, which I basically don't, to be honest. Um, for, for the most part, I just don't. And um, I've had like, I remember being in Dominique, well, we were in Barbados at the time, but my cousins from Dominique had come over to meet me there. And I had said, oh, well, you know, I'm really, really knackered. And he was like, I will take Mimi to our room. I'm just still weird. I don't want Mimi going to anybody's room without me. So I said, okay, I'll come, but I'll sleep in, in, you know, I'll just fall asleep if I fall asleep. I woke up to something like a crack and I just heard a scream and I just sat bolt upright. And I was like, what the hell was that? He was like, oh, we just slapped her. I was like, like, are you mad? And then we had that whole big discussion 
like about, and it was like, oh, like you British born people, you don't know this, you don't. No, mate, I'm sorry. I just don't think so at all. And we had a really, really big discussion about it. But I think that was one of the points that I was carrying across. Like I was always miserable. It makes me smile so much. Like um, on Saturday, we went up to, for my cousin's wedding, we went up to Birmingham and we were on the train and we were on the train 20 minutes. And Mimi was like, I miss home. I miss home. And I don't think I ever called it home. You know what I mean? Not really. It was like, oh, it was where we lived. It was the house. It was this, it was that. And I think it is definitely a lot more, um, you know, like you said, boundaries change. Things change as you're going on. And I really do feel, and I feel like a lot of parents around my age are like that have really taken that on board. Aisha? I was going to say, I feel like our generation, thanks to what previous generations went through, and I was actually going to say in terms of looking at women, particularly before us, black women before us in this country, they just took up space by just being there. They didn't have time to fight, do civil rights, you know. They were too busy going to work, raising kids, you know. And so, but I feel like our generation has the, had the luxury to be able to sit and look, actually, how do I want a parent? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to, how do I want to allow my kids or how can I help my children to be themselves? And, you know, not that our parents didn't. This is no, not at all, mum, dad, love you. <laughs> you know, it's not that they, they are great and were great and did think about these things. But I think perhaps some generations before them and some people didn't have that kind of luxury. And actually, I think, you know, we're lucky to even be, the fact we're even having this conversation, I feel like it's a great thing. Um, and, you know, the fact that you noticed that about Mimi, who obviously it may, makes a difference that you are having consciously making these choices, right? Yeah, absolutely. I do think um, going back to the point about black kids appearing older that came up on was it our last show one before last i think it's one before last with um we had dr sean sober's i sound like i'm not sober i am um dr sean sober's and dr adam elliott cooper who were on and sean had made the but we weren't even talking about early school years we were talking about university he was even talking about then about black children being treated as older than they are because I was saying there comes a certain point and Liz made, you know, where, where I'd said, oh, you know, around 9, 10 is when black boys stop becoming cute and start becoming that threat. But actually Liz is right because there were certain incident, incidents that I've heard of happening in nursery. When Mimi was in nursery, I was called in because one of the nursery teachers was terrified of her. As I, excuse me. And this is what we're dealing with. This right. is what we're dealing with. The, 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 the absolute adultification of black children, babies, babies, babies you know. Yeah. And when I think about the harm and the trauma that is caused to children who are under five because their nursery practitioner is scared of them, using that language, it's so loaded and it's so, yeah. so dangerous because the internalization process that happens for children is, oh, well, I'm a threat. You know, people are scared of me. What yeah. does that do to the psychology of the yeah. child? So yes, of course, that, that baggage that is being carried right into university spaces, that has happened at two years old, three years old, because a black child said no, or because a black child said, I don't want to do that. All two-year-olds yeah. say, I don't want to do that. That's childhood. Yeah. But why is the way in which black children's responses to things being interpreted as different? because of white supremacy, because of institutional and structural and systemic racism. 
you know yeah. it's not unconscious bias we're not in that we're not doing yeah. that we're not doing unconscious bias we're doing exactly. that this is very conscious that decision to phone you to ask you to come into the nursery yeah. that was very conscious so we need to stop we need to stop misnaming and just call it what it is you know yeah. shame the devil let's just call yeah. it by its name yeah, absolutely I saw an um not just that as well. It was like uh my son, I, when I came in one day, this woman, I mean he's 21 now, he was two. She was calling him sexy. I said, Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Hi sexy. I went, what? Yeah. What? But there is that like, the scale, the hypersexualization. Right, the hypersexualization of black men, that toxic masculinity that has been put on them. From, and it starts from young. And I know somebody who had a mixed son, but appeared very black, you know, Afro, it wasn't the straight hair, it was just black. He, him and a little kid showed their nunas to each other, their little bits, and they tried to put him on the register. Yeah. That would have followed him. They wanted to put right. him on the sex offender register. They wanted a note made that would follow him to school. Mm -hmm. And then he would go through all primary school with it all, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just like the honestly the constant fighting that you have to do, and I really think that um, it's an important lesson as black parents, if you are watching, to um, fight from early, from when you see those things, and you're not don't say to yourself, "Am I being silly? Did she call my kid sexy? Oh, she didn't mean anything by it." Do you know you've just got to fight for every single little thing for them, Aisha. Well, what I was going to say is it ties into all of this, but one of the things I was reading in advance of the show was that black children are aged, and this is an outrageous stat because, you know, when you've got kids and you're around kids, it's pretty easy to roughly guess how old they are. Obviously, you get some extra small kids. Obviously, you get some extra tall kids. But they're constantly roughly aged at four and a half years older than they are. Now, four and a half years from two to six or six to 10 or 10 to 14, this is an astronomical amount of time in terms of development, in terms of intention of, on, on the behalf of the child, in terms of uh, legal culpability, for God's sake, you know, there are so many things that are, are come out of that four and a half year misaging, right? And I think that that all ties into it, the sexualization, the um, culpability or um, assumed culpability, you know, the threat, all of this. I mean, that's huge, four and a half years. I can't, I couldn't get over it. I'm sorry, but as you can tell, but I just think that you must come across that a lot in your work, Liz. You obviously use sort of with um, both of your kids, Abba, you know, when you talk about Mimi and yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even now, you know, still, oh, not gonna, can't go into detail about it. Even now, like the lack of presumed innocence of my deceased daughter is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely unbelievable. So yeah, you, you still have to fight and, and argue. But I, yeah, like I said, I would, I would start young and I'm lucky that I had these sort of these lessons ahead of me sort of with the older ones to sort of really raise Mimi in the way that I want and just to absolutely refuse to let her shrink herself. You know, I, I well, probably should. <laughs> no, she really embarrassed me the other day. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> we were just leaving, we were leaving a play park and this kid came and thumped Mimi in the back. And I was just like, you are. And then the mother came over and was like, oh, oh, oh. I said, why did your child hit my child? And she went, Oh no, it's just because something happened over there. It's, it's okay. I said, no, no, it's not okay. She goes, oh, well, your child was stamping on my child's hand. 
I said, um, if she was, and you saw it, why didn't you call me and tell me that was what was happening? And I said, and if she was standing on her hand, they were on a climbing frame, so it was clearly an accident. And uh, so the woman was like, no, no, it was no accident. It was no accident. So I said, Mimi, was it an accident? She went, no. I went, anyway, say sorry, Mimi, and we're going. <laughs> I, was <just> like, <laughs> I, was like, I just, I was like, Mimi. But like, I have like, like most of the time, I have a like really blatant and honest, do you know what I mean? I think that's quite a hard, it's a hard thing to get through to any kind of child. But I think if they think the punishment is going to be crazy severe, like we would have thought, you know what I mean? Like I really am trying to, at the age, to get her just to tell the truth, no matter, because the consequences really are not going to be as bad as you think they are. And to have that safe space where she feels that she can come and sort of speak about it. I mean, it's different with boys and girls for sure. Do you find that, Liz, in the nursery setting? Because I think I'm the only one here with girls. You guys, Jen, you're just boys, right? You're boys. boys. And uh, Liz, what's the difference with black girls and black boys? I think there is this kind of, um, there's this conversation that we were having, you know, about adultification and hypersexualization. So that's the first thing that we need to look at, the hypersexualization of black girls and of black boys and the adultification of black boys when it means that they are going to be accused of something or the reprimands. And so I spent 16 years as a nursery manager. I came out of that role last year because of structural and systemic racism, mainly to do with these things that you had spoken about really when we're thinking about these policies that are put in place which penalize our children very early on that becomes part of the system and the structure that is systemic racism when we think about policies like the prevent duty that is systemic racism we know what these policies are in place to do and those policies are put in place in the early year setting not just school in the early year. so you clearly see there's an agenda and so who does that impact the most well marginalized and minoritized communities which tend to be black and brown so when we're thinking about like differences between boys and girls how they navigate that space in a very kind of you know literal sense i think there is just something to be said around how practitioners respond to black boys and black girls because you can tell so much in the response so for instance i know that my teams of staff had always been predominantly black women um, the minority in my teams were white women. And when they were white women, they were usually white European women. So Spanish women, um, women whose heritage was rooted in Poland. They were the kind of white cohort of teams that we had in. And they came into a space which was already kind of culturally compatible. Like we're setting the agenda. You are doing what we are telling you to do because we know our children and our families. So there's not going to be any assumed white superiority complex happening here. No assumed white savior complex happening here. We know our children, but also our children know us. So looking at how you engage with the boys. So language like sexy, don't be ridiculous. No, <laughs> we're not doing that. Or this level of performance. So say, for instance, music time. Music time for us wasn't always nursery rhymes. Sometimes music time was the pirate radio station because it was culturally compatible. So when we're thinking about how we express ourselves through music and dance, there is a level of the gaze, the white gaze, which kind of supposes that the way in which little black girls dance is sexualized. No, it's just expressive. So what we're not gonna do is put that gaze onto black girls 
we're going to say, if you're shaking your bum bum, you're shaking your bum bum, let's all shake our bum bums. There was no, oh, oh, no, we don't do that. That's not appropriate. There was this thing around, again, always readdressing what the boundaries were. And it was rooted in letting black children be children, whether they are boys, whether they are girls, whether they don't identify as being a boy or a girl, because some of our children were like, I'm not a boy, I'm not a girl, I'm just me. <laughs> you know, their concept of self was just, I am my name. And so what that meant in terms of how we responded to that, that was important. So I just think there is such a, a rich, deep conversation to have around the nuance and the subtlety of hypersexualization and of adultification. Yeah, that's yeah, really good point. I totally agree. Totally agree, especially when it comes to the dancing thing. You know what I mean? You know, our kids just don't have stiff hips, and that's just how it is. <laughs> they just can't help moving. They just move, and it's you know, culture and around you know, the mass or or fet or whatever you call it. You know, carnival. That's just what they see, and like you said. I mean, we joked when we had uh, Mark Thompson and Biggie C on, we were like, oh gosh. And we talked about the Jim Reeves of cleaning. And then he was talking about um, some more modern music. And he goes, it just occurred to me to the youngers, that's their Jim Reeves, but they would have to do their cleaning to some eighties, you know, like Randy Crawford or something like that. And just how the things are sort of passed down in the generations. I mean, um, what do you think is the biggest, Jed, like having two boys? You got two boys quite close together as well. I mean, I commend you. I found the, I found the difference very, very early from the difference between my daughter to my son. I don't know. I admire anyone who's got more than one boy in the house because they are <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like it's the high, it's the high energy. It's the the house is going to be a mess for the whole day and then we're gonna deal with it afterwards and it's kind of just giving them that space to be also kind of like I actually enjoy seeing them like squabble and bicker because I think it's a really interesting way to like see their dynamic and see how they like interact with each other but I know that um like outside when people like they don't really fight outside it's mainly inside the home but if they are having like um a little bit of a tiff outside I think people can quite that can perceive as quite like violent or quite concerning and it's like no they're just like they're just it's like a two-year-old and a five-year-old they're gonna they're gonna fight and I've got a brother and we've got the same kind of um age difference and we were exactly the same like if I said some of the things that my brother did to me he smashed my barbie over my back he threw his hot wheels toys at me and it's like it's just the way that siblings are but again it's this idea that oh there's all this kind of like aggression and all this kind of stuff and I remember the very first week of reception um again someone said to the teacher that my son was um violent or one other child accused my son of being violent towards him or something and I overheard the parent telling the teacher no the parent telling the teacher like just in front of me in the queue so I had to say like when I dropped off my son I had to pull them aside and I said like what are you like what are you talking about kind of thing and they're like yeah well you know and my son is quite tall for his age as well which 
doesn't help so like yeah well you know he's so much bigger than him and you know we don't want him to be scared of coming to school like basically suggesting like it's some kind of like bullying thing and I said listen I know my son he's not violent like he's got a younger brother they squabble and they know not to like bring that out of the house they know that they're not supposed to really be hitting each other or that kind of thing but I was like he's very high energy so maybe it was just a misunderstanding oh yeah well yeah well you know and all this kind of stuff and to be honest like I'm not here to like I'm not here to like laugh or like judge anyone else but like since then like my son's like my son hasn't had an incident at school this other child has so it's kind of like as much as people want to like project onto like your child it's like you know your child and I think that's the thing that I've had to say over and over and even sometimes when family members say oh this old it's like no I know my child like I know him like we spent a lot of time together (laughs) we like we're in each other's faces and again it's kind of like what you were saying about having that open conversation like I always encourage them whenever even if you're upset with me if you're angry with me tell me some of will be like oh mum you just make me so frustrated and I got really angry and I'm like okay yeah let's talk about it and keeping that open dynamic so that they can find home as a safe space so it's like whatever happens out there you can bring it here and we'll deal with it together even if you get in trouble out there we'll deal with it together if you want me to and my son said to me before he's been upset at school and I so he was upset at school he told me what happened and knowing my son I knew that he probably did kind of do what he got told off it was about not tidying up properly and I was like yeah I can see you getting in trouble for (laughs) for that but I didn't say anything to him I said okay go to school today have a good day and if you don't have a good day talk to me and I'll talk to your teacher and then he came back and he was like I had a good day but I still want you to talk to my teacher so I said okay fine so the next day I went in and I spoke to the teacher and I just had a conversation you know how's how's he settling in he was upset so this was after lockdown how's he settling back in he was upset about something I just wanted to talk to you about it so we had a conversation we had an understanding and afterwards I said to my son I was like you know I spoke to the teacher you're right he was like yeah and he felt like better so I think it's always like and it's not to like always have your child's back when they're in the wrong but it's to always let them know that you're on their side like first and foremost I'm on your side so if you do want me to talk to your teacher I will but we'll also have a conversation about the fact that when it's time to tidy up you actually need to tidy up you can't be you can't be hovering around waiting for everyone else to tidy up and then like we we have to have those conversations but I think it is um I am very aware and even the other day that one of the uh, one of the other parents said to me oh you know he's got a lot of girlfriends I was like excuse me yeah you know he's got lots of girlfriends but apparently this girl he's his real girlfriend and I was like well he's not said anything to me about them so I'm talking to my son about it and he's just like yeah I've got lots of friends that are girls like that's just it so then I'm like ah so now we're gonna have to deal with the sexual like is this the sexualization of black boy because my son is so completely oblivious to this boyfriend girlfriend dynamic he just wants to be friends with everyone he even complains that sometimes the girls don't want to play with the boys he's like mom why don't they want to play with us I'm like you know what sometimes give them their space you know you don't have to play with everyone all the time but now it's like again all of these things that kind of are starting to come up and I'm thinking towards the future and like going into secondary probably a little bit too far ahead but thinking about secondary school and I think it is kind of um 
it's concerning but because I've got a brother I've kind of seen it happen so I feel a bit more kind of prepared and that's also why I'm very particular about the settings that my children are in so someone will say that I'm extra because my son goes to the school that's a 15 minute walk away not a five minute walk away some will say that I'm extra because my youngest goes to the same nursery and I'm literally like I'm not gonna move until I find a better nursery because I know this setting I know that they support and they affirm my children like one of them's already been through there they affirmed him he was confident he went off to school fine so yes my son is gonna stay there and if that means that we're gonna live here for a bit a bit while longer I'm happy to do it because first and foremost I want my children to be as affirmed and as kind of protected as possible and when we're talking about this like village mentality I think it's very hard to do in modern life, but the way that I see it is that where, wherever my children are, that's part of my village. So I need to know that I can trust the um, early years practitioners, that I can look them in the eye and we can have a conversation. I need to trust that, you know what, if I have to leave them for a week over half term, like that I'm not gonna be worried about them. So I mean, childcare is expensive and I did feel a bit of a way like forking out over half term but I was like you know what my kids are worth it this place affirms them they look after them they push them as well like academically they care about them like I've I've got a relationship with the manager I've got a relationship with the key workers so I'm just gonna do it and I think that that's the way that you have to look at it like it is hard like I, I didn't send my kids to the nursery which does the mandarin because I was like, I don't like the look of this place. The kids don't look happy. The, the manager looks a little bit too severe and like she can't take a joke. So <laughs> I'm not putting them there. But these are all the like negotiations that we have to do as black parents. But you know what, like, I like, and honestly, I'm not a confrontational person by nature, but I'm like, for my kids, like I have to be like <laughs> on point because I'm their first like, barrier in this world I'm the first thing that's going to protect them so yeah these are all the things but yeah yeah a lot of that stuff I think that you have to be like that you have to champion your kids unfortunately I remember at one point at my son's secondary school I was in the school every single week every single week going I'm not having this is like he's not going to be painted as a great you know sometimes you just have to tell them because they were like, oh, is he angry a lot? Is he this? He's spoilt. He's spoilt. We got too many things. We didn't say that. And then it was like, oh, yeah, he's spoiled. You know what I mean? It's just like, so he's a brat. That's why he's <laughs> behaving like a brat, because that is unfortunate what we've done. So I think, you know, maybe I need to pull back on this a little bit. But I think if you're not there just to say this, this, this all the time, this is what's happening, like with Mimi and stuff. But I mean, in terms of, forking out for childcare, I only have one person, one person where I live, in Bedford where I live, who I let look after Mimi, nobody else, and it's expensive, but I will pay it because I know she's happy. And I'm very, very careful with Mimi due to things that happened with my elder daughter, very, very careful with her. I've let Aisha have her, but I really don't. But we can also think as parents, if you don't trust, that we've also got online spaces, which our parents didn't have, you know, and I didn't have growing up with the elder kids. Like, Jendela, I've learned things off you. For instance, like, <laughs> you tweeted once, and I was wondering about, you tweeted once, sometimes, like, do you get annoyed when your kids keep touching you? And it was something like that. 
And I had it with me, me, and I thought, am I being mean? And she had her sticky hands on me, her sweaty hands on me. Then she was crawling on me. Then she likes to grab me around the neck from behind. And then she was like, she was just breathing hot breath on me. And I was just like, I just wanted to get off. But I don't want to look mean. And then you tweeted it, and I was like, okay, it's not just me. <laughs> so I was like, get off! And it is like, but we do, and we can learn sort of a lot from sort of other black parents online and learn it a lot quicker, definitely. I don't know, Aisha, like, oh gosh, you had an argument on the Black Woman's Hour page, didn't you? About your son being called cool. Oh my God, yeah. So we talked about that in one of our most recent episodes, but it actually tied back into, and I was going to ask you, Jen Della, whether you've had the same thing. Obviously, my son gets told all the time, I'm his mum, I only make pretty kids, so obviously he's really beautiful. But, like, it gets continuously told, no other descriptor ever by white people is used for my son. Oh, actually, articulate, he gets there every now and again. He can use words, but also has brown skin. I, I don't know how we do it. I don't know how we do it, right? Exactly, <laughs> totally blows their minds. But he's so cool. Oh my God, he's so cool. Oh my God, he's so cool. And I always say, I'm going to repeat myself from the last show. He's not really that cool. He likes wordplay. Poor kid, when he's 18, I'm going to say, he dances to songs like this in the car. Like, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I think he's cool, but I find it such a, that really typical, like, limiting. Their view of us is so narrow. All they can see when they see this, like, light-skinned, curly-haired boy is cool. They don't know that, actually, he's a master of punnery. You know, he told his grandma what a fuselage was when he was 18 months old. They don't know that he dances like a white guy. They don't know that, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's not, not that much cool about him. And, um, you know, and they, they don't see any of that. And that sort of two-dimensionalization of us, exactly like you were saying, Liz, starts so young. It's the same as, and it really does my head in. He's going to break some hearts to my nine-month-old baby currently breastfeeding. How is he breaking? He breaks my heart when he wakes up for feed number 4,000. But whose heart is he breaking? Like, honestly, I just don't understand why that is the first thing. And every time people say it to him, I say, no, you're not. Because <laughs> I'm that kind of mum. <laughs> like, no, you're not. You're going to no more useless men. You're going to be like this. You're going to be a good mum. I mean, yeah, maybe. Maybe a little bit of overparenting. But, you know, I have to, it's like, there are two things there, aren't there? Like, they're already, for, like, framing him as a terrible partner you know and like he's going to basically emotionally abuse women and the other thing is why are you talking about his girlfriends he's nine months old you know there's just so much in all of that like I mean I, I guess you probably have suffered the same joys Jandela and I know you certainly did have it with your sexy two-year-old everyone loves a two-year-old <laughs> what, um, <laughs> what yeah. I wanted to ask Liz actually um for parents that are watching because I'm sure that every black parent watching this is going yeah yeah I've had that I've had that I know for myself, uh, I get the articulate thing a lot as well. So I know, um, I've spoken to other black parents who might go to a nursery where there's no Liz. Do you know what I mean? Where they have to speak on behalf and advocate for their child. And I have seen it happen myself. Like I remember like with my older daughter's uh, school and she went in and uh, this teacher, the, the parent was shouting at the teacher and stuff like that. I mean, as we talk about the gaze as it um, pertains to our children, it also pertains to us. So what advice would you give black families in terms of if you're trying to confront something? Because I've walked past and I've had people, I've had to pull up teachers sometimes for saying, oh, cause you're not like those black mothers. 
And what does that mean? You know, excuse me, what does that mean? Yeah. Who are you talking about? You're not like a typical black single mum, are you? I'm like, what, excuse me? You know, and all the, I was a teenage mum as well. Do you know what I mean? So like, I know that a lot of times um, black parents will want to say something and then it suddenly switches onto the parents. So is there any advice you could give our parents that are watching who want to advocate for their very young children? The best way to go about it is there is is it to take the teacher to the side, for instance, because then you might be told that you're undermining the teacher in front of everybody or call a meeting. What's the best way? I think there are so many different angles to this as well. Ever when we think about how parents, again, Jendela started this by talking about the white gaze, even in our confronting of the system, we're thinking about how we're going to be interpreted. And that in itself is a stress. And I always say, if we are going to be the most powerful advocates for our children as black parents, we have to make sure that we are speaking from a place of absolute commitment and concern. Ultimately, we are human, you know, white people like to talk about we're all one race, we're the human race. Well, actually, yeah, <laughs> actually, we understand what it means to be racialized as black and racialized as a black parent depends um, entirely on the gaze of the white teacher. That's when you get those conversations, I guess, around, oh, you're not like them. So the divide and conquer. So when we're thinking about not like them, if that is a sentence that's used, you automatically have to rebut that and be like, well, I am a black parent. There is no kind of like us and them. We all want the best for our children because we look at the collective situation that's going on in our society, in our country. It's not just a US problem, it's a UK problem, but you must be direct. I always say like, don't let the fear of kind of getting things wrong stop you from having these very important conversations. And I would slightly kind of amend that. I talk about that in anti-racist training for white practitioners. As black parents, don't let the fear of you being misinterpreted stop you from raising valid concerns because your child's well-being is at the center of this. And your child's, I guess, navigation through what we already know is a harmful system, that has got to be made as easy as possible by you advocating because you know, we hear this, silence is violence. The same thing applies if it comes to black parenting. Your silence is not going to help your child. Actually, the advocacy of your voice, the power of your voice and the power of the commitment of your voice to this cause. Similarly, I remember every week, my mom and dad were at my primary school. Standard, it was like, oh, they're here again. I remember being in the canteen and looking out the window and be like, oh, it's my mom and dad, hi. Not knowing what they were coming for, but I have this very vivid memory of my teacher, my white teacher, um, crying at the end of my mother having a little bit of a word. And it's then when I understood, you know, the weaponizing of white women's tears, big up Ruby, big up Ruby Hamad, um, you know, the, the, the weaponizing of tears and knowing that that meant, oh, my mom's had a word with you. But I realized how powerful that was because I noticed the, the, the problems the situation changed and I was dealt with ever so nicely, but it also meant that for other black parents, they saw Yvonne Kerr coming to the school and they were like, oh, okay, that's what it is. And my mom would rally the masses. So if there were other black parents that wanted to, we're all going along together, 
because this is the power that we have. And I think often in these situations, we're intimidated by the institution of school because we also envelope that within whiteness. We are scared of the rebuttal that will happen if we go in and we speak in a certain way. We know even if we speak really calm and really kind and smile, we still get labeled aggressive. So, you know, it's always open to interpretation. So it's best that you just hear the real. That's why I said, shrinkage is dead. We're not in a that again. We have to come in our full black woman self, our black mother's self. And a lot of the advocacy, I guess, that parents um, also need, and what I'd always do is I would accompany the black parents, even in terms of like when the black children would leave my nursery and they would go to school, Nine times out of 10, there was gonna be a problem in reception. So I just came along with my deputy, who was also a black woman. And we just all sat in the head teacher's office together. And we just had a little conversation, but it's that, it's the necessity of kind of coming together and just not being, not being lulled into this false sense of security that school will look after your child. The nursery will look after your child, make them know what it is from the get go. So there's no room for error. I absolutely agree. I mean, we had Toy and um, I bet you on our last show, and we were talking about power of black people. We were talking about the Derek Chauvin um, uh, verdict. We were talking about what it possibly could mean. And he actually said something that's really important that kind of it, what you just said reminded me of it. He said, think global, but live local. And I think that is a really important point that you just made there that you go together as black parents, you speak to the other black parents at the gate, you have a word with them, you sort of, you know, you make eye contact with them. So Angela Mars said, we do anyways, black women, we're just like, mm, mm. <laughs> like I do a show at the Vauxhall Tavern, I say, you guys have got gaydar, but we've got noirdar. We can have a whole conversation without saying a single, single word. But I think that is really, really important for other parents to hear as well. Aisha, you were gonna say something else? It was just, I was going to say, I had a um, heated discussion with my son's headmaster the other day. I won't go into the ins and outs. It wasn't race related. It was um, COVID testing related. But um, anyway, afterwards, as we left the school, Rowan went to me, Mum, you had a go at Senior Simon. And I was like, it wasn't a go. It was a discussion. But it meant something for him to see that his mother wasn't having it. And, you know, that he didn't have to be. Obviously, he needs to behave at school. He's really good. There's never any trouble with his behavior or anything like that. But it was that I'm not scared of his school. And I said, and I said, anyway, honey, you know, you might be eight and at school. And it's correct that you have respect for Senior Simon. He's the headmaster. I'm not eight. <laughs> you know, I'm a big, hardback, grown woman with, you know, with a lot of life experience and a lot of things that I think and I like to say. And I am not scared of Senior Simon. So you yeah. will find that when I find things that I disagree with at school, I will tell them that. And he was like, ah. and we sat in the car and kind of sort of companionable, companionable silence afterwards. But it was a really interesting thing that didn't even occur to me that actually for him, that mattered. You know, you like you. Sorry. I, I modeling all the time that that modeling of advocacy and that modeling of speaking up and being the voice you know when we think we think about children being sponges that's also black children they are also sponges and when we think about the labels of kind of you know being who gets to be spoiled and who gets to be a brat who gets to be aggressive and naughty yeah and when we think about the loaded language that children are absorbing all of the times they also absorb when you are an advocate for them and you are challenging those people in authority that they are taught and trained to revere and mm. and yes there is a time and a place for that but also there is a time to use your mouth and use your voice and yeah. speak up 
we have to teach that to our children too. I think it does work because after that in the nursery, we had, when the Black Lives Matter thing was happening, obviously our kids are picking up on it. They're hearing us talk about it. They're seeing us watch clips on the computer. They're listening to everything. And Madam Mimi went into nursery and decided she wasn't going to eat out of a white bowl. She said, I will not eat out of that white bowl. That bowl is white. Me and my mother are black and we don't, um, and my mum said we don't like white things. So obviously they told me, I went, I went, I never said that. I never said it. I never, and they were like, no, we know you didn't. But you know what? I think that they'd gone away and done a bit of work as well. And they said, look, this is what's going on in the world. She's obviously picking things up. She's trying to find her place in the world. So they just said, listen, it's a bowl, eat out of it. And that's all they did about it. But they said, it's, it's just, do you understand? Like if we hadn't been working together in that kind of way, I don't even think, you know, that could have been a, a, a call you know that was put in about me and I think it's also really important culturally as well like my son's dad is Nigerian and was raised there we found that was a problem because he didn't understand like what do you mean police aren't good and they're to keep, keep the peace what do you mean teachers are just to be I said they're not always to be obeyed there's sometimes you have to say this child this teacher is being racist to our son like, I don't like it. Does, has anyone found the cultural things around parents hard? <laughs> yes, yes. So my parents, um, born in Nigeria, um, my mum especially raised in Nigeria. And when I used to get in trouble in secondary school and I was like, listen, these teachers are racist, they're this or that. My mum was just like, just behave. Because she's grown up in a community where her parents are teachers. Her teacher lived down the road and knew her family. So like the teacher and the school was part of the wider community. And there was that understanding, there was that respect. And obviously I didn't understand this at the time but now as an adult I do like England's not like that these teachers aren't your friends they're not my friends and it wasn't until I got suspended from school for two days and she got called in and she had to have the meeting and all that kind of that is when she finally understood wow like okay this isn't this isn't Nigeria like these teachers and I remember that so vividly because she took me to the shop to get makeup afterwards and I was like oh, okay she's not mad at me because I think that was her thing of realizing that you know what like you've been going through it and I'm not being I've just been defaulting to the teachers are right you're wrong kind of thing and I think that that is something that um that if we don't address kind of like our traumas as well in terms of like teachers and authority it can affect our parenting because we don't want to have the confrontation because we're remembering what it was like to be a child at school and getting told off and I think that that's something that I've realized as well that I've had to address all the issues that I had with school and with teachers to be able to be in a place where I know that I can advocate for my son in a way that's fair in a way that's direct because yeah like I've got school traumas like I've got traumas from school but and if I let that kind of encroach into my day-to-day -day life like I wouldn't be able to stand up to my um like to be fair my son's teachers right now are fine but I wouldn't be able I know I wouldn't be able to so um yeah that cultural difference it's uh it, it's a lot and I actually remember kind of like growing up around um like other kind of like Nigerian kids and we'd look at the Caribbean kids and their parents are always backing it for them at school and we think why don't our parents like <laughs> like when we get in trouble our parents are just like 
do better next time but then you'll see like the Caribbean kids and their parents will be down at school fighting but because they'd been here longer so they knew they got the system they knew what the deal was our parents who had come to the country later were still trying to understand this and now it's us who've been through that system and we're like you know what our kids are not getting it no 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 our kids are not getting it like we're ready and I like the point I think that Liz was saying about taking someone down to the like taking someone with you like whether it's a godmother an auntie an uncle like someone who loves your kid take them with you if you need that like backup to like talk to your teacher or to talk to the head teacher or whoever else because you know what they've got their backup they've got the school system the rules the this the that like nine times out of ten if something happens the teachers are going to back the other teacher like you need your backup as well so um yeah that cultural difference I felt it as a child and I'm like that is not going to happen to my kids now like it can't and they've also got the backup of white supremacy you know know, when we're going in we have to go in you know it's the water remember yeah she said so we have to go in fully equipped and ready but know as well that this is a system that is trying to play us it's a system that's trying to consistently gaslight us into imagining that these things are not real and it's also a system which tells us even when we're challenging it the work that I'm doing in terms of anti-racism the challenge that I get from the Karens in the early years Mm. phenomenal you know they are relentless and I just say as it is you are a Karen, oh, that's offensive. Go and do some work around the history of the violence of white women in these spaces, in the world, globally. Let's go and look at it and look at how the term Karen has evolved to being a Karen. And before you were Karen, you were Becky, you know? And so when we're thinking about that, we're also making sure that we're bringing you along on this journey. You're lucky that we've got time. Yeah. <laughs> I would also, yeah. <laughs> we're lucky we've got you, Liz. That's all I'm <laughs> honestly it really is just terrible sometimes do you know what I mean I think you also have to arm yourself with knowledge however you get it if you want to watch lectures if you reading's not your thing if you want to just talk to other people because there was one instant where I had where they said Mimi's lying I went so what they went she's I said she's three that's what they do they lie and she goes, no, 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 no. I, I came armed with it. I was like, actually, look, I emailed all the, these research papers. And I said, it's normal for kids. That is the age they start lying because that's the age they realize that you can't see everything they do. And she's like, no, 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 she's too old for it. I said, how could she be too old at three to be lying? Like they just learned, she just about learned to talk. Do you know what I mean? Now she's forming words, she's using them to lie. That is what she does. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, it was, I was so alarming. No, it's not alarming. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's really important also for parents as of early, um, you know, years, kids, just to know the developmental stages so that you can turn around and actually say you're, you're, you know, you're applying this kind of behaviour problem to this kid that actually does not exist. Yeah, the overdiagnosis of these things, you know, your child's got ADHD. That's the common one, you know, there's something wrong with your black boy because he's very, very energetic. That must mean that there's a problem. But interestingly, you know, black children are diagnosed clinically later when it comes to thinking about autism, ADHD, but the labels and the suspicion is much earlier than for their white counterparts. And so that's really interesting as well when we're looking at stats. Being armed with knowledge is absolutely key. We need to understand about child development. All of us need to look at child development and also as well normative standards that are applied because we have to be really mindful about ableist language as well 
um, when we're thinking about child development and know that within that, you know, the statutory and the non-statutory guidance that were given to um, us, you know, particularly the statutory guidance from the government, um, you know, it, it trains us to think there's only one way of being, but who is writing this guidance? Yeah. So when we're thinking about baseline testing for four-year-olds, that's a mad thing. That's a mad thing, that makes no sense. Within six weeks of starting school, baseline testing for who, for what? That six weeks is about emotional development and getting to know your friends, what's happening, how you feel. I'm four years old. I don't want to sit no test. It's a load of foolishness. But again, we look at who is writing these things, who is implementing these policies, and what is it used as a tool for later on down the line to say, oh, your child didn't pass that test, you know, that baseline test, when my child was four years old. But also, yeah. you ask a four-year-old a question, and they will answer it 12, they've asked them the same question three times in a row. You don't even have to leave a day between it. You can sit there and say, what's your favorite color? Blue. What's your favorite color? Purple. What's your favorite color? Orange. Wow. You know, it is just, as Ava said, they're just learning to lie. Do you remember watching your kid learn to lie? It's hilarious. So you're watching them and they're just sitting there and they're just like, bare ball face lying to you while the thing that they, like, while they're doing the thing they say they're not doing. I don't understand the whole thing with the whole testing of four-year-olds is really nonsensical. And actually, I mean, it must have, surely it's got to be really destructive. Like, what are they going to get out of the end of it? It's not even, I mean, are we going to be hothousing two-year-olds so they pass their four-year-old test? Like, what is the, what's the end goal here? The end I goal think it's really important that what they said, what are you going to do with it later? Ooh. Because it's like, they, I didn't go to state school, so I didn't have, um, but I've sort of learned a lot about the education, the state education system and how it treated black kids. And so we were, but I learned that uh, people coming over from the Caribbean and putting in uh, English as a second language down. You're from Jamaica, are you? What's wrong with you? Uh -huh. Do you know what I mean? So there's a lot of things. And then a lot of times these are, they decide who's going into what set, don't they? Yeah. And like a lot of black kids were put into remedial classes yeah. when they were actually very, very bright children. So yeah, that, that thing for four-year-olds, I wouldn't because I don't think you could sit, Mimi down I just don't even like it you know now I'm making her do a bit of homework but back before they were like Mimi hasn't why hasn't Mimi done her homework I went because she's four hi <laughs> Mimi have a nice day that's it that's, that's it we have to be armed with that. We need to know the history of education. So, you know, when Bernard Cord wrote that, how the West Indian child is made educationally subnormal, that that was written like 50 years ago. It's yeah. just been reprinted because it's still relevant now. Nothing ain't changed. And what we're seeing is government policies which have been introduced and enforced by yeah. people who have no best interests of any children, actually, at yeah. heart. Um, apart from the very elite and the very rich. So we're looking at the intersections of class here. So when we have this argument about what about the working class white boys? Listen, what about just working class children? Mm. What about that? Okay. And how everybody is going to be kind of milled into this space of being educationally subnormal because the government said they didn't pass that four-year-old baseline test, that 20 minute test. You know, it's all used as a weapon to be armed um, or to arm politicians with later on because this is a long-term strategy. And that's why we have to talk about exploring and exploding this system of racism. We have to, because it's happening before our eyes. This is going to be statutory. It's in the government guidelines for the early years foundation stage. Children will be tested, okay, four-year-olds. And so because we don't often have conversations, I think across early years, primary, secondary, you know, 
these kind of these kinds of nuances get lost so we are trained as parents as well to think oh we need to worry about this when it gets to reception or, or when the child gets to year one year two what's yeah. happening in nursery yeah. what preparation is being put in place for that child to then be school ready mate do you remember the first day of reception and year one I just want to know who's in my class I want to know who's got the sweets I want to know who's got the pugs who's got the whatever I'm not interested in no test. Test wasn't given a word. We just want to be friends, you know? I was making brown paper bags of little sweets to bring in for my friends to be like, you're my friend. You can be in the gang. You can be in the gang. You can be, you know. I wasn't thinking about tests. And that's what childhood should be, particularly for our, our black children. Yeah. Can you be Minister for Education, please? Pardon? <laughs> Don't talk to me about ministers, because then I'm starting to think about our friend, Kemi. Oh, oh, let's go there. Let's, so let's go. Time to, time to end the show. We've got to end now. We've got to go. We've got to go now because nobody can be trusted. But, 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 but talking about ministers, just big up Dawn, big up Dawn, Auntie Diane, each and every time because this is what I mean about the solidarity and that we need to be there to be. You know, sometimes when I look at Dawn on the camera in the house and she's just like, <laughs> you know, she's giving them real black mum looks, those black yeah. aunts looks like. Are you not okay? Yeah. That's why I'm here for it, you know? So I love Diane Shade though. Diane Shade. Put some shade in there and you're like, like you just catch it, don't you? It's like, I blame his mother for calling him Kia. And then she just carries on with what she was saying. <laughs> oh my God, she's so funny. She's really, really good. But so quickly, just before we go, like what would you think would be the ideal list? Because we're talking about four-year-old testing, whereas... And you spoke about different mothers. Um, when it comes to black parenting, is there any culture that you think we're close to in terms of the way that we parent? Um, European kids don't go to school till much later, do they? Like Sweden, don't they start at seven? So I've really got problems with the way in which, um, you know, Sweden and Nordic countries are held up as the, the pinnacle of early years education. We should look to what's happening with Sweden, but what's happening in us looking to Nordic countries is that we're not looking to the racism. Mm. And we have to think about this being really intersectional. It's multi-layered. So the way in which our culture is nuanced, we are mixing in so many different things. As Jandela spoke about, my parents were both born in Jamaica, came over to the UK at 14, okay? My grandfather came here in 1954. And I always say, my grandfather would be turning in his grave to know we're still, I'm still having the same conversation that he was having with my mother, you know? And so I think when we're thinking about the culture that we are creating around our parenting, it is picking from all of these things. The African and Caribbean diaspora is so wide, it's so broad. We have so much to pull on, so much richness that we have to start thinking about the way in which we draw on different cultural norms, our cultural norms that help us to child rear. There are things that we see if we go to the Caribbean or we go to the continent of Africa that we always can be, I'm be like, oh yeah, I like that. Or I do that, or that looks similar. You know, some of the pedagogy, the way in which I um, inform my earliest practice has been taken from time I spent in Jamaica, looking at the children going to school just going to school. There wasn't anybody said, be careful, don't cross the road, make sure you look. The, the youths then are just going to school, they're chatting, they're happy, they're doing what they're doing, you know, they're saying hello as they pass, you know, all of those interpersonal social skills, those things, we carry them unknowingly, I think. We already do it. 
what we've done is we've been fooled into thinking that the way in which we rear our children is incorrect. We have been fooled into thinking that our way of doing it has not got any validation. We have been fooled into thinking we need to change, we need to adapt. No, we've been doing it and it's been successful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here having these conversations. You know, yeah. we've always pushed back against these things. So there isn't one way, I think, but I am very conscious of the way in which we are told to look at white scholars in education. We are told to look at Nordic countries as a model. We're told to aspire to forest school. I spoke about forest school on my Instagram the other day, the dangers of forest school being assigned to the white middle-class um, yoga moms, the yummy mummies, um, and what that does to us. We are forest school children. We were raised outside. That's part of our just being and our diaspora. We were always outside. That wasn't called forest school. It's just called not in the yard. So <laughs> that's what it was. So why have we, why have we allowed, you know, the gentrification of childhood to happen? They've already got yoga. They just sell stuff back to us, like attachment parenting. Oh. You were sleeping in your parents' bed. That's just it. I mean, <laughs> having a conversation with you, like when you're little, your mum isn't coming out to go and get you from anywhere. She's just whipping her top down, showing him, having you just go back to sleep. And that's just how it is. But I had very many arguments about Mimi sleeping in my bed. Um, and I said, she's just going to. And actually, we got norovirus. And had she been in her cot that was by the bed and it had the bumper around it, I just looked over and just saw a fountain of vomit coming up from her mouth. If she had been in that cot in that position, I wouldn't have seen it because the cot bumper would have been in the way. And then, you know, the, the big discovery of getting a instead of getting a, a, a sling on your thing, put it on your back because then your kids, and you're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a lot of, I agree with you, definitely. There should be a lot more confidence in the stuff that we've done before um, and, and what our parents have done, definitely. I think there was just loads and loads to think about. Has anyone got anything else they want to add? No. I've loved being here with you guys. I we're going to say goodbye to the audience, but will you two ladies stay on and just do 10 questions with Aisha? Yes. It's our little bonus show that we do. So this, yeah. All right, then. So thank you for joining us for another Black Woman's Hour. I hope that you um, took something from this. I'm going to try and find some resources for you and put them in the comments below. Um, and then you can just do your own reading around the subject. So everyone say bye. 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 bye.